This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is Latino USA, the radio journal of news and cultura. It's Latino USA. It's Latino Welcome USA. to Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. We bring you stories that are underreported, but that matter to you. Overlooked by the rest of the media. And while the country is struggling to deal with these we problems. We listen to the stories of black and Latino students. A united Latino front. A cultural renaissance. Organizing at the forefront of the movement. I'm Maria Hinojosa. No se vayan. The way we got to debt cancellation was not because of researchers. It was not because of policymakers. And it sure was not because of elected officials. It was because of borrowers coming together and really organizing in really small numbers at first to show the absurdity of the student loan system. And through their organizing, it's the only reason we even know the phrase debt cancellation. And it's the only reason now that millions of people have experienced the feeling of debt cancellation and it's the reason why we're in the moment where debt cancellation is feeling more real than it ever has before. From Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, the growing call to abolish student debt. So I'm in the studio today with producer Julia Rocha. Hey, who? Hey, Maria. So I don't know if you remember this, Maria, but when I joined the team as a little intern at Latino USA back in January of 2020, I was still in school at our shared alma mater, Barnard College. And as a child of immigrants and first generation college student, higher education was always framed to me as like the avenue for upward mobility. It's always framed that way, especially for children of immigrants. It's like, got to go to school, no ifs, ands, or buts, for sure. So I graduated the spring that the pandemic hit. And as I tuned into my YouTube Live broadcast virtual graduation. Oh my God, that's so sad. In my parents' living room in California. Oh God. I was already thinking about the $19,000 I had taken out in federal student loans in order to attend school and how I was going to pay that money back. That's a lot of money for a young person. So it's like you can't really celebrate because you're like celebrating, but you're also like, oh my God, I've got to start paying this back, right? Right. And compared to some of my peers, it wasn't even that much. I had a lot of friends graduate with six figures of student loan debt. It's just a wild feeling, like an anxiety that starts to overshadow everything else. The main question on your mind isn't, What am I going to do to build a fulfilling life or make a positive impact on my community? For many people, it starts to become, how on earth am I going to pay this back? And of course, this is an issue that disproportionately impacts Black and brown communities. Some studies show almost 90% of Black students have to take out loans, and around 73% of Latinx students take out loans, compared to 66% of white students. 
Studies also show that Latinx students who grew up in economically vulnerable communities might see student loans as a financial burden that can affect their family's financial stability, choosing to drop out of school or skip college altogether. But because of the pandemic, I actually haven't had to pay back a cent of my student loan so far, because in March of 2020, the Department of Education issued a moratorium on student loan payments and interest. To help our students and their families, I've waived interest in all student loans held by federal government agencies, and that will be until further notice. Right. I remember that. I mean, it was a big deal. Also, of course, 2020 was a presidential election year. So there was a lot of motivation politically to do this because student debt cancellation was a big talking point. Joe Biden running on a platform basically of at least partial student debt cancellation. And if you look back at the ads from his campaign, you can see it was definitely appealing to bring out young voters. I was really terrified of going into debt after I graduated high school. The fact that Joe Biden wants to forgive student debts is something I'm excited about voting for him. So I started to get interested in the issue, and I wanted to know how we got to this moment. My first question was, How on earth did we get to a place where the U.S. government holds around $1.6 trillion in student loan debt? As I did more research, I found that just a few decades ago, public college used to mean free college. I spoke with Dr. Jaleel Mustafa Bishop. He's a leading researcher on anti-racism, racism in higher education, and student loan policy. We switched to student loans at the exact moment that low-income people, black and brown communities were enrolling. We're going into the buildings as a mass. We're going to ask people to come out of classes. You also have the 60s and the 70s being not only a time of social movements and social unrest in the country, but particularly on college campuses. You are seeing everything from free speech to racial justice movements to apartheid battles all playing out on college campuses. Jaleel says that in the wake of student organizing, there was a backlash. And a vocal figure in that opposition was California governor and then president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. plain truth of the matter is this has to stop and it has to stop like the day before yesterday. And it's going to be stopped, whatever it takes. During his time as governor of California, Reagan called for an end to free state college tuition. And then when he was elected president, Reagan continued to cut the education budget, as well as spending for other social programs. And instead of government funding, student loans became the norm in the decades to come. And I think a lot of that was because student loans were imagined as this way to kind of discipline this new wave of students who didn't fit the former profile of advantage, of privilege, of coming from the elite backgrounds. Okay, so... I think what I'm understanding is that as student debt essentially becomes a bigger part of how we pay for higher education, that meant that there were now other actors who were in the picture, like, for example, loan companies started popping up and like debt collectors, right? Yeah. So student loan companies like Sally Mae signed multi-million dollar contracts with the federal government. And in these agreements, if a borrower couldn't pay the loan back, the government would step in and cover the cost. So not only would the loan company not lose money, they were also guaranteed a profit on each loan, which gave many of these companies a reason to give out large sums of money, regardless of whether a borrower could actually pay it back. Okay, so 
I'm sorry, but this sounds like a crisis just waiting to explode. Yep. When the 2008 recession hit, it became clear that many of these loans would never be repaid, and the student loan industry received one of the first big bailouts. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. The heightened financial turmoil that we have experienced of late may well lengthen the period of weak economic performance and further increase the risk to growth. So after the recession, the government made some adjustments. The government now gives out loans directly, but loan companies still profit from servicing the loans. Here's Jaleel Bishop again. Loan servicers, they don't own your loan, but they get paid to service it. So they get paid to call you, to call you again, to enroll you in programs, to make sure you're making your payments. We pay debt collectors when you aren't making your payments to come after you. We pay private law firms to come after you. You know, so you realize that there are a lot of players, that there's a lot of money at stake in the student debt industry now. And it's so big that it's almost as if a lot of people have just accepted that this is the way it's going to be, right? That it's a part of everyday life in the United States of America. But there's been a lot of demand for change. Definitely. So as I started digging into the issue, I also wanted to know the story behind the call for student debt abolition and how it's become a part of our mainstream conversation. Today marks what activists are calling One T Day, the day U.S. student debt reaches $1 trillion. In 2012, just a bit over a decade ago, people came out to protest that federal student loans hit $1 trillion. The demand from protesters was the same demand as many advocates today— cancel all student debt and make college tuition free. But at the time, the demand was unheard of and coverage of the protest from across the political spectrum framed the demand as lofty and naive. So I'm wondering what did happen after that protest 10 years ago and what did in fact help to move the needle on the conversation? Was it the activism? Student activism has been key in changing the conversation. And today, we're going to hear the stories of students who've been speaking openly about their debt and demanding change. And we're going to start with the story of Nathan Horns, who was part of what some say is the first student debt strike in U.S. history, which happened back in 2015. Nathan went to a for-profit college, which was notorious for putting profit over students. But what he discovered through his activism was that the problem was deeper than the school itself. It was the student loan system that allowed it to thrive. And as students realized that their debt was not a personal problem, but a systemic issue, they began to demand systemic change. Who? I'm sorry that you have debt. But on the other hand, as a journalist, I'm really glad that you're doing this story. So I want to hear it. Let's take a listen. My name is Nathan Horns. I am from Columbia, Missouri. In 2008, just as the nation was plunged into an economic recession, Nathan Horns, an African-American 18-year-old, had recently graduated from high school in Missouri. He moved to California to pursue his dream of becoming a pop star. I just wanted to be a member of a boy band, like, I thought I was going to be, like, the next member of, like, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. Those are my boys. Love them. Seen them live, like, a hundred times. 
His mom gave him a clear ultimatum. Nathan had two years to make it in the music industry with his parents' financial support. After the two years was up, she's like, hey, you're not financially stable. We need you to go to school. Both of my parents went to state schools, so my parents didn't take out any loans. My mother and my father are both college graduates, and it was very important to them that their children went to college. Nathan was feeling the pressure from his parents. And then one day, while he was watching TV, he saw a commercial for Everest College. I was looking for work, and for six months, I still couldn't find a job. I didn't know what else to do. I chose Everest. The commercials are actually real. I'm not an actor. You have to call. Try it out. That number is there for you. Everest College was a for-profit college. It was owned by Corinthian Colleges Incorporated, a massive corporation based in California. A for-profit college is a college owned and operated by a private company or business. They're often managed by investors and stakeholders, and the profit they make is often used for non-educational purposes, like paying shareholders and executives lucrative salaries. Coming out of the recession, the labor market was in shambles, and more and more people were looking to higher education to better their situation. Companies like Corinthian saw this as an opportunity, advertising aggressively in black and brown communities and making the dream of a college degree feel accessible. I just was like, hey, these are colleges that are near where I live. Let me try to enroll. Even though Nathan thought he was enrolling in a local school, Corinthian had 105 campuses across the country and online with over 100,000 students. So Nathan called the number on the screen that day and got a hold of a recruiter. Then, for weeks on end, his phone wouldn't stop ringing with calls from the recruiters at Everest. And they were saying like, hey, Nathan, we really want you to come and check the school out. There's no pressure. Just come in. We'll show you the school, you know, see if it's a good fit for you. Finally, Nathan, along with his older sister, Natasha, decided to get on the bus and check the school out, not far from where they were living in Los Angeles. At the time, Nathan and Natasha's dream was to start a recording label and music camp for kids. When we finally get there, we sit down with the recruiter and she basically says, hey, if you don't sign up today, you're going to have to wait six months to enroll in school. She knew exactly what to say. I just felt nervous. So Nathan filled out the paperwork right there on the spot enrolling in Everest. At the time, Everest had one of the highest for-profit tuition rates in the country. For example, a two-year degree in paralegal studies at the campus that Nathan went to cost about $41,000, compared to $2,400 at the nearby community college. Going into Everest, it was not like your normal state school. There's not all these extracurricular activities. There's not a sports team. There's not a mascot. You're just kind of here to do the work. In 2011, when Nathan was enrolled at Everest, 26% of undergraduates at for-profit schools were Black, compared to 16% at public and private colleges. There were similar trends in Latinx student enrollment. You could definitely tell that they were targeting African-American and Latino men and women, black and brown mothers. Even though for-profit schools aren't public institutions, they still get the vast majority of their revenue from federal funding. How? Federal student loans. 
For-profit colleges like Everest explicitly targeted low-income and military students who qualified for federal financial aid and student loans. So even though most students couldn't pay the high tuition price up front, they could take out a loan from the federal government. In the case of Corinthian, over 80% of their total revenue was covered by these federal funds. And to cover the rest, Corinthian turned to private loans with incredibly high interest rates. Nathan remembers going to the financial aid office, where he was given a mountain of paperwork. They don't give you time to read any documents or anything like that. They're just like, hey, don't worry about that. We're going to get you scholarships. Where are the scholarships? Oh, they came in the form of a student loan that we never told you about. Congratulations, you're in debt. Although the financial aid staff spoke about these loans as quote-unquote scholarships, Nathan says the school pulled out both federal student loans as well as private loans, all without his informed consent. And he would soon find out his story was not unique. Coming up on Latino USA, Nathan embarks on a journey to hold fraudulent for-profit schools accountable but what he encounters is much bigger than he could have imagined. Stay with us. No te vayas. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash latino. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash latino. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Hey, we're back. So when we left off, we were hearing the story of Nathan Horns. He attended Everest College, which is a for-profit school owned by Corinthian Colleges, Inc. It's a company that targets low-income and vulnerable students of color and brings them into expensive college programs. Producer Julia Rocha is going to pick up the story from here. In 2010, Nathan had enrolled in Everest College to study business management, with the hopes of starting a recording label in music camp for kids with his sister. Although Nathan couldn't afford the school's tuition, he says the financial aid officer assured him that his tuition would be covered through grants. But Nathan soon found out he was actually expected to pay this money back, because these so-called grants were actually student loans taken out without his consent. No one knew about the loans. We didn't know about the loans until six months before the loans were due. And it's not like the federal government was unaware that for-profit schools like Everest were doing this. 
In 2012, while Nathan was in his second year of school, the U.S. Senate published a 1,000-page report outlining the many ways students were being misled and taken advantage of, and the way federal money was funding these institutions. It stated, Federal taxpayers are investing billions of dollars a year in companies that operate for-profit colleges. The report also pointed out that the vast majority of students left with student loan debt that would follow them throughout their lives. And although some elected officials began to take notice, the school stayed open for several more years. This morning, my office filed suit against Corinthian Colleges in what can only be described as a for-profit college predatory scheme. Then in 2013, Kamala Harris, who was Attorney General of California at the time, sued Corinthian. Essentially, we are talking about Corinthian colleges taking advantage of Californians who simply aspire to achieve the American dream. All of this was going on just as Nathan was getting ready to graduate from Everest. In May of 2014, Nathan arrived at the church where his graduation was taking place. Nathan remembers Everest officials guided excited graduates into one room, while family and friends filtered into the auditorium. As we're in this room, putting on our caps and gowns, in comes the president of our location, and he tells us, hey, we need you to sign this form that says you won't try to sue the school if you don't get a job. They then tell us, if you don't sign this paper, we will then make it so that you don't walk today. So I just was like confused and other people were crying and signing the paper. It was only after graduation that Nathan learned he owed $68,000 plus interest in student loans. Nathan was 24 years old, unemployed, and expected to start paying back over $600 a month for his student loans. Immediately after graduation, we're all like, what did we just sign? What did we just do? Did we just sign our rights away? We need to figure something out. Unsure what to do next, Nathan and a few friends from Everest began a Facebook group for other Everest students to connect and share experiences. He called the group the Everest Avengers. It's so true because, you know, Avengers Assemble, we got together, we created the change we wanted to see. Nathan and his friends started calling and emailing former students. And when they had enough people together, they gathered at a local coffee shop a few blocks away from the Everest campus they'd attended. When we first started having our meetings at Clatch Coffee, we were just sitting there telling our stories. Although the meeting started small, with just over a dozen students, by the summer after graduation, Nathan says they were gathering upwards of 100 students at each meeting. Of course, this is a very small coffee shop, so they had this nice patio area. And once a week, we would just go out there and just get with our laptops and do research. Then in late May of 2014, a librarian at the Everest campus Nathan went to abruptly resigned and started talking to the media about Everest predatory recruitment tactics. At the time that this librarian was blowing the whistle on Everest, a group of organizers calling themselves Strike Debt reached out to her. 
Strike Debt got its start in 2012, forming out of the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. They were exploring the relationship between household debt and racial capitalism and asking themselves what a debt strike could look like. Hannah Appel, a graduate student at Columbia University at the time, was organizing with strike debt. What does withholding our payments look like? Who would that give us power over? How could that potentially change our material conditions? And of course, when we hear the language of strike, the place that we're most familiar with that language is in a labor union, is in a workers union, right? Workers alone are vulnerable, but together workers have the power to withhold their labor to make demands. Strike Debt got in touch with the librarian and asked if she knew of any students organizing around their debt. The librarian, who had seen Nathan's Facebook group, reached out to him. She found me on Facebook and was like, hey, there's this group. She explained what Occupy Wall Street was because I'm like, I'm just trying to be a pop star. I have no idea what any of that even means. Like, I've never even been to Wall Street. Nathan passed on his contact info. Hannah and the other Strike Debt members reached out to Nathan and organized a meeting between the Strike Debt crew and the group of students Nathan had been organizing. And that was the first time many of us discovered about the Department of Education, what student loans actually are. And it was such an eye-opening experience. As Nathan met with the members of Strike Debt in the summer of 2014 and began to learn about the government's involvement in Corinthians' predatory lending, the U.S. Department of Education started looking closely into Corinthian colleges in July of 2014. Then, under an agreement with the Department of Education, Corinthian colleges announced it would put 85 of its U.S. campuses up for sale and close the remaining dozen. School is over for thousands of Southern California students. They've just learned their for-profit colleges are suddenly closed. Well, students were blindsided this morning when they opened an email that said that their campus is closed starting now indefinitely. Strike Debt, now named Debt Collective, brought together a group of 15 Corinthian college students from across the country to spend a weekend together in San Francisco. Being in that room was super powerful with all these other students who share different backgrounds, but very similar stories. As students shared their stories, they realized they had a lot in common. They all had a debt they couldn't pay, but they were suffering the consequences alone. Here's Hannah Appel of the Debt Collective again. So what if they all said, not only can we not pay as individuals, but we affirmatively, collectively assert that we won't pay because this debt is fraudulent. So the 15 students decided to go on strike. We won't pay. We are the Corinthian 15. By the time we announced the Corinthian 15, we had already become the Corinthian 100. 15 former students of the former for-profit Corinthian colleges system have launched what they say is the nation's first student debt strike. Dozens of college students striking back. Now a group known as the Corinthian 100 has gone on strike. It's all over news stations, all over the world. We were in the Washington Post, the Times. It was everywhere. Nathan was fired up, seeing the strike build momentum. I'm an Aquarius. So, you know, things like this really kind of resonate. We're going to be the Corinthian 15. We're going to get out there. We're pounding the pavement. Somebody get me a bullhorn. I'm ready. 
As the Debt Collective was helping to organize the students, they also reached out to Luke Heron, a student at NYU Law. If we're organizing around their debt, who do they primarily owe the debt to that we're talking about? Well, it's to the federal government. Luke realized that the legal document that ruled their debt was the Higher Education Act of 1965. And so what I did is I literally printed out the Higher Education Act, and it is not an easy read in the least. It's very long and complicated statutory scheme. As Luke looked through the long document, he found a clause that made him pause. It's called Borrower Defense to Repayment, which states that borrowers have a right to defend themselves against the collection of a debt if the debt was issued in a fraudulent manner. And so it occurred to me that that seemed pretty directly on point to the situation here. It was almost suspicious at first. Why isn't something happening about this? It seemed a little too perfect. Even though the law was technically there, there was no form you could fill out, and the Department of Education didn't have any type of infrastructure to address these claims. It became obvious to us they have a strong institutional bias against doing this because the Department of Education, with respect to higher education, is primarily set up to collect debts. And so this is a way to stop itself from collecting But Luke saw this lack of infrastructure as a possibility. There was no legal process in place to make that happen. So we could make it up. So my thought was, let's design a way of applying to have your debt canceled that's as easy as possible, but that also speaks the language of the Department of Education. Luke and other collaborators created an online form that asked students simple questions about their experience at Corinthian colleges. The resulting PDF was a legal argument ready to present to the Department of Education. So if you say, you know, the loan officer lied to me about, you know, whether I was taking on loans, they said it was going to be grants. Then we plug that into a claim about misstatements about financial aid. And then the, the resulting PDF document, it's a legal pleading. Therefore, Department of Education canceled this debt. Nathan and the other Corinthian 15 students were some of the first to use the tool. The Debt Collective then published the tool on their website and circulated the link on Facebook groups like the one Nathan had created. Hundreds of students began filling out the form. You have to remember that when people are filling these out, there's no way to submit them to the Department of Education. So we're just like seeing them fill them out and then we have them. Right. And we developed all of these information security procedures. We're very serious about protecting people's privacy. But we were like, well, what do we do? Like, how do we submit them? Then in March of 2015, just a month after the Corinthian 15 had gone public with their debt strike, they met with several government officials, including representatives from the Department of Education and Consumer Financial Protection in Washington, D.C., so we're here at the State Plaza. <laughs> Nathan was excited to go to Washington, D.C. and capture the moment for his YouTube vlog. It's going to be super awesome. We're doing things that has actually never been done before, guys. We're changing the way that people think about student debt. And that's what is super important. As they prepared for the meeting, Luke decided to print out the over 200 borrower defense claims the Corinthian students had filled out. And I got a paper box and I spray painted it red and I put the applications in it and then brought it to D.C. with me. And we you know, literally plopped it on the desk in front of the undersecretary for higher education and the Department of Education. And that was how we submitted the first applications. And our argument at every point was, don't look at these applications individually. Look at them as evidence of a systemic problem and deal with the problem systemically. 
By creating this online tool and generating hundreds of legal pleadings, the Department of Education was forced to create a way to deal with these claims. Eventually, the department created their own online tool, which looked a lot like the one the Debt Collective had created. It was a victory in a certain way because if we hadn't designed our own application, that's like the easiest possible way to apply, they would have made some ridiculous document that would have required all these affidavits and a notary. Although the effort had started by focusing only on Corinthian colleges, it soon expanded to other for-profit schools like ITT Tech and the Art Institutes. In just over a year and a half, the Department of Education reports over 82,000 students use their website to file their claims. Then, in May of 2015, two months after the Corinthian 15 members met with government officials, Corinthian Colleges Incorporated shut down and filed for bankruptcy, reporting less than $20 million in assets and $143 million in debt. As the for-profit giant finally collapsed, students waited to see what this would mean for the thousands of dollars they had taken out in loans to attend these schools. That's when we first started seeing people get their debt discharged. And I'm like, okay, but I was one of the first people to fill this form out. I am trying to figure out why my debt has not been discharged. What's happening? Obama, question mark, exclamation point. Like, sir, what's going on? You need to call me, send me an email, whatever it takes. I'm available. It would be over a year of uncertainty before Nathan received any information about the $68,000 in loans he had dangling over his head. I was living from pillar to post, as my mom would say, sleeping on couches with friends, family members, things like that. I got an email on February 17, 2017, my birthday, from the Department of Education telling me that I owed zero dollars. I was just mind blown. I started crying. Nathan was hopeful that maybe this strike would lead to massive debt cancellation for everyone. I'm like, maybe they'll get rid of all of it and none of us will have to worry about it. That is yet to happen. However, I thought and I was hopeful that that could happen because I just wanted everyone to feel the same joy that I felt. Nathan was surprised to learn that not even all Corinthian students had their debts discharged as the Department of Education processed each claim one by one. My debt has been discharged, but my sister who went to the school at the exact same time as me, her debt has yet to be discharged. I'm fighting for my older sister. I'm fighting for my younger sister. I'm fighting for the other students in Corinthian. I'm fighting for everyone because until all student loans have been discharged, I'm not gonna stop. For nearly seven years, since 2015, Nathan remained involved with the Debt Collective, advocating for the cancellation of all student debt. Then, in June of 2022, the Biden administration announced that they would cancel all federal student debt of former Corinthian College students. 
that's nearly 560,000 borrowers. It's the largest one-time discharge of debt ever made by the Department of Education. As soon as he heard the news, Nathan says he texted his older sister Natasha, who had also gone to Everest. Then, a few days later, he gave her a call. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? Hey, little Nathan, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's so good to hear from you. Natasha recalls what she felt when she read Nathan's message. I actually got a text from you and I cried. I'm not going to lie. I was just so happy and I was never disappointed or upset that you had got your loans forgiven and I hadn't gotten mine forgiven because the whole point of the fight was to not just fight for ourselves, but to fight for everybody and for the people who couldn't get up and fight for themselves. Natasha had remained on debt strike since 2015, and that meant debt collectors wouldn't stop calling her. Anytime a debt collector tried to call me, I'd tell them it was a fraudulent call and I would hang up the phone. I decided to be in the red. You know, it messes up your credit score when you're in debt. So I'm not able to get a car. I can't buy a house. I can't get property. I can't do things to own a business. It did stop me, but it also just made me fight harder. Now, with her loans finally off her shoulders, Natasha has big plans. I want land. I want a property. I want my mom to have a business. I want my brother to have a business. You know, I can finally set forth my actual life. And it took most of my 20s, if not all of my 20s, to get here because I'm now almost 34 years old. The victory was not only for all Corinthian students. It also proved that the government does have the authority to cancel student debt. Whereas just 10 years ago, any form of debt cancellation seemed out of reach, the strike showed activists they could demand an education system completely free of debt. And the only way we can do that is if we continue to stick together. So I'm I'm really excited to see what's next. Coming up on Latino USA, as the call for the abolition of all student debt intensifies, we look at the way this debt impacts Black and Latino families across generations. Stay with us. No te vayas. We're back. And before the break, we heard the story of a group of former Corinthian college students who launched what some say is the first student debt strike in the U.S. It lasted for eight years. Finally, in June of this year, the federal government erased all their debt. It's pretty historic. It's considered to be the largest one-time discharge of debt ever made by the Department of Education. The strike showed the power of students banding together over the issue of their debt. But there's still more debt that remains for thousands of others, especially black and brown students. Producer Julia Rocha takes us now to that fight and asks why canceling all student debt is an issue of racial justice across generations. 
It's a crisp, sunny day in April 2022, and there's a lot of movement at the Eisenhower Memorial in front of the Department of Education in Washington, D.C. Dozens of Greyhound buses arrive, carrying hundreds of people from all over the country. A brass band keeps everyone dancing. There's a table with bottled water and granola bars where people are picking up small red pins. With black Sharpies, they write down the amount of student debt they have and wear it on their chest. $10,000, $50,000, $200,000. Although debt is by no means an uplifting subject, the energy is joyful, a reminder that the number on your pin is not yours to carry alone. The action was organized by the Debt Collective, with support from 70 other organizations, and people are here demanding that President Joe Biden cancel all student debt. There are students who, like Nathan, were scammed by for-profit schools. I also met many students and graduates of public and private universities. The Black, Brown, and Indigenous people at the rally spoke about student debt as an intergenerational issue— one that has ties to both the past and the future. My name is Dr. Sofia Marjanovic. I am from the Fort Peck, Ocheti, Shakowi, and Assiniboine tribes up in Montana. My sign says, why do I have student debt when the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty guaranteed me free education for colonial occupation? People also spoke about how debt keeps them from building wealth across generations. Over time, indebtedness grows over generation in Black families. It's a system where Black families pass on intergenerational debt in the name of the American dream. The large crowd marched until they reached the entrance of the Department of Education building. When I say cancel, you say student debt. Cancel! Blocking the traffic on the street, students took the megaphone and began to share their stories. Hey, um, I'm Caroline with a K. I go by they, she pronouns. I'm first generation in college. That's Caroline Nova, a 20-year-old Dominican-American university student and organizer with Dream Defenders, a group of black and brown youth organizing against incarceration, police violence, and corporate greed. In one hand, Caroline holds a piece of paper with the amount of debt their family has. My mom took out over $100,000 in loans, and now she's in debt because of it. And I'm grateful for her because she took it out so I could get a degree that she couldn't get. This is for the Black mothers out here. Taking a lighter, Caroline burns the piece of paper as the crowd cheers. Caroline is currently a student at the University of West Florida, a public state school where they're studying psychology. They dream of starting their own private practice, to support other non-binary and Afro-Latinx youth like them. Since Caroline can remember, college was always important. My mom never really got to finish college. She came out here and like, it was more of a survival tactic where it was just like, I have to work. I don't have time to go to school. She came here to give me and my sister a better education. But even though it was important to their mom, Lucy, that Caroline go to school, the process of actually applying to college felt foreign to both of them. Since my mom didn't really go to college, she didn't have the knowledge as to what I should do. I didn't know whether or not to take out loans. I didn't know, like, what the Pell Grant was. Like, I literally had to learn it on my own. Feeling lost in the process is common, says Julio Bishop, 
the expert on anti-racism and student loan policy who we heard from earlier. And he says black and brown students are already at a disadvantage even before they sign any student loan paperwork. I always like to start with the context before a black or brown student ever signs for a loan. They are first living in a history and ongoing reality where the United States as a country and government has worked extra hard to extract both wealth and income from Black and Latinx communities. We know a lot of wealth is generated in this country through generations of owning homes and owning land. And while those generations were owning their homes and owning land, Black and brown people were working that land and being exploited on that land. If Black people were picking crops in the South, we know out West that the Latinx community was being exploited in similar ways. Although the University of West Florida is a public university, Caroline and their mom still had to take out $19,000 in federal student loans in order to afford the cost of tuition, room, and board. Caroline's mom had to take out additional private loans to pay for her house and car while sending Caroline to college. For Caroline and their family, this debt is not only about accessing higher education. It threatens their ability to generate intergenerational wealth. In this case, Caroline's mom might not be able to leave behind a house or car for her children. She's the first one in her family to own a house and own her own car. So she wanted to make sure that she kept the house and car. So she took out that big loan to help her pay for all of that. Um, When she took that out, I didn't really care. I didn't think anything of it. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. You took out a loan. Okay, congratulations. Until she was like telling me her experience and she was like, I don't have the money to pay it back. Like, you're going to have to help me pay it back. And I was getting stressed because I was like, I don't even have the money to pay it back. Like, how are we going to pay this back right now? Right as Caroline was finishing their sophomore year of school, they called their mom, Lucy, in Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, mommy. Hi, baby. How does student loan impact your like day to day basis? As a parent, you go ahead and you take a loan for your child because you want to help them be successful. Obviously, that takes money out of the household. We have to decide if we're going to eat meat today or if we're just going to eat plain white rice. And that's it to be able to afford going to school. It affects you every single day because it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it doesn't stop. Caroline's mom worries about how she'll pay it all back especially with the high interest rates. This means that unless Caroline's family is able to pay back the full amount right away, their balance will continue to grow every month. This is why the push to abolish student debt is not only about education. Here's Jaleel Bishop again. So we should be able to get the things that we need without having to go into debt. And that's not just education. That's for health care. That is for housing. That is for us to just make it through our day-to-day living expenses without having to take on a payday loan or use credit cards or have medical debt. Then on April 28th, just a few weeks after the rally where I met Caroline, President Biden made this announcement. I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness. And uh, I'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. The number that's been thrown around most often is $10,000 of debt cancellation. But many advocates and researchers like Jaleel 
say this figure doesn't go far enough. In early May, Jaleel testified on the Senate floor. So let's make it clear. $10,000 is not enough. Even $50,000 is not enough for economic and racial justice. Black people, my family, my community are more likely to owe over $50,000 just for undergrad. Have parents who borrow into the six figures, rely on private student loans. And if we ever make six-figure income, we often have six-figure loan debt. So you cannot limit student debt cancellation and also claim to care about racial justice. The data is now on your side. People's life stories are now on your side. And history will not be on your side. We need full debt cancellation, and we need it yesterday. Thank you to the committee, and I look forward to your questions. So I reached out to the Department of Education and spoke with Ashley Harrington, Senior Advisor in Federal Student Aid, about the student debt crisis and how it impacts Black and brown borrowers in particular. Anything that we do on student loans has a disproportionate impact on Black and brown borrowers because these are the borrowers that are struggling the most. We have changes and improvements that we need to make, and this is an effort that is not just the work of the department or the administration, but the work of lawmakers um, and policymakers at all levels of government. Although Ashley says the Department of Education is focused on making improvements to the student loan system— With regards to student debt abolition, she says the hands of the department are tied until the president announces his decision. So without any decisions on broad-based cancellation and what that will look like and what it will encompass, I will just say we implement the policy decisions that are made. Higher education isn't going away. The student loan program isn't going away. And so there is definitely always going to be a need to support students and to manage the system. And so we are concentrating on continuing to do that better every day. Ashley says the department is focused on programs that help borrowers manage their debt, such as income-based repayment programs and public service loan forgiveness. But many advocates that I spoke to say these measures are not only ineffective and difficult to enroll in, they also don't prevent students from going into debt. The concern about the higher education funding model and how it's primarily a debt finance model is absolutely something that we hear all the time. But we at the Department of Education are just focused on this is how students pay for college. How can we make it so that these loans are not a burden for the rest of their lives and that higher education is actually that step up instead of that huge burden that holds them back? But Jaleel says he believes the government does have the power and the resources to restructure the system. If the government's already spending 80 to 100 billion dollars a year issuing student loans, what happens if they just issue that as a grant? And then we start to realize, so it's not a question of where do we get the money from? The money's already here. We just have to stop deciding to also throw on top of that money, money for the loan servicers and the debt collectors and the private law firms that the money's already being spent. It can just be spent in a way that prioritizes the everyday person over corporations. I asked Caroline if they think about their debt often. They mentioned the piece of paper they burned at the rally in D.C., the one with their debt written on it. It felt great to burn that paper and let it go. I'm not thinking about it at all because I'm expecting it to be canceled. I am manifesting it to be canceled by not expecting it. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. Like, they better know. By the time I graduate, student debt better be canceled. Like, I'm not paying it back. I will personally go up to Joe Biden and tell him, like, I'm not paying it back. Even though partial debt cancellation could come as a relief for many, it still wouldn't get at the root of the issue, that financing education through debt keeps people, particularly Black and brown students, from seeking the education they want and ultimately from living the life they want. 
Caroline believes in the power of imagining a future beyond debt. They brought this up with their mom, Lucy, on their phone call. Imagine your life without student loans or any loans. How would your life be? Oh my gosh, absolutely fantastic. There is nothing more stressful than owing money. Because when you remove that much debt out of, out of your system, and you can just concentrate on what your next step will be or how you can achieve your dreams. Reaching those dreams? Dreams that have been generations in the making, Caroline's mom says, would be priceless. This episode was produced by Julia Rocha and edited by Daisy Contreras. It was mixed by Gabriela Baez and JJ Carubin. Fact-checking for this episode by Monica Morales-Garcia. Special thanks to Braxton Brewington and the Debt Collective. The Latino USA team includes Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Marta Martinez, Mike Sargent, Victoria Estrada, and Reynaldo Leaños Jr. with help from Glorimar Marquez. Our director of engineering is Stephanie LeBeau. Our senior engineer is Julia Caruso. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. Remember, you can always find us on social media. And no te vayas. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. California Endowment, building a strong state by improving the health of all Californians. And the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. You know, we're here together. There's Don. I'm here for you. Remember, we're gonna erase this debt. The DOE's gonna come through.